All right, you recording? Yep, I'm rolling. I'm rolling. Yeah, you always say I'm rolling. I guess that's like your word. That Yeah, no, rolling is definitely not my word. <laughs> eh, it's okay, just roll with it. So today we're going to be talking about the problem of pain. And to start, we're going to answer a few questions. And the first one exactly is, what is the problem of pain? Will, do you know, do you know what the problem of pain is? Um, I know it's a book by C.S. Lewis. Okay, but do you know uh, what the existential problem of pain is? Mm, not really. Okay, so let me sort of explain it. So the problem is p- of pain is essentially that pain is a problem. So we don't like pain, pain hurts and we experience pain but at the same time we for some reason expect a loving god and so there's sort of a gap between expectation and experience so the problem of pain is how how can these two things coexist how can pain exist in light of the fact that god is a loving god and so how exactly is this a problem then when it comes to God? Well, some people some people take the problem of pain as a sort of argument for the fact for what they believe to be a fact that God doesn't exist. And so they use the following logic and I'm uh, I'm getting this from a paper by Daniel Howard Snyder called Theodicy. And so the logic goes like this. One, there's a log of horrific evil and suffering. Two, if God exists, then there is no horrific evil and suffering or not so much of it, unless unless there is a reason that would justify him in permitting it and so much of it. Thirdly, there's probably no reason that would justify God in permitting evil and suffering or at least so much of it. And then fourthly, the conclusion, so there's probably no God. And so the title of that article is Theodicy by Daniel Howard Snyder. And just to explain one more thing, what is a theodicy? A theodicy is an attempt to state a reason that justifies God in permitting evil. So a theodicy is essentially us giving a reason that excuses God for the problem of pain. Okay. Will, do you think I missed anything in explaining the problem? No, I think that's pretty straightforward. Okay. Did you want to add anything to that? Um, no, if you just want to get on to questions that we can discuss. Okay, so here's my question. So I think a lot of us view pain as this ultimate bad, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, a lot of us view evil as an ultimate bad. And I think at this, when we do this, we're equating pain with evil. So we're saying that there's no difference between the problem of pain and the problem of evil. Do you think this is correct? No, and I also don't think it's correct that most people would agree with that. What do you mean? What I mean is that I don't think most people would say pain is perfectly evil and that 
pain is bad. I think people recognize that pain can sometimes not be bad, meaning pain alerts us when something's wrong and we can go fix that. Or pain in the short term um, helps us gain a great good in the long run, like uh, delayed gratification. People understand that. I think what people have a problem with is excessive or undue pain and suffering. And they believe that is evil. Okay. Okay. Which, that brings up another question. Right, which is? What is excessive and what is unjust and undue? When it comes to pain? Yes. Okay, how do you answer that? Well, I don't know. (laughs) What is excessive? So, that's actually the main point of Daniel Howard Snyder's article, Theodicy. Let me just pull it up here real quick. His main problem is that he doesn't understand why so much pain exists. His main contention with pain is not that is not the fact that it does exist but the fact that there's so much of it so let me just read from the last few paragraphs of of his article we each need to answer this question for ourselves but for my own part on careful careful reflection i don't see how any of them by themselves or in combination would have been lost or diminished if god had prevented uh, such and such such and such pain um Nor can I see how any of them by themselves or in combination would have been lost or reduced if God had prevented genocide or extreme torture or the Ebola virus. Thus, I can't see how God would be justified in permitting so much horrific evil and suffering rather than a lot less. And then he says, Mm -hmm. if I'm right, that is, if we can't think of a reason that would justify God in permitting so much horrific evil and suffering, does it follow that premise three, and remember, premise three is there is probably no reason that would justify God in permitting horrific evil and suffering or so much of it. So that's premise three in his argument. He says, if we really can't think of a reason that would justify God in permitting so much evil and suffering, does it follow that premise three is true? Not at all. Premise 3 would follow only on the assumption that if there were a God-justifying reason, we would probably be aware of it and see how the goods involved in it require the permission of so much horrific evil and suffering. And it is by no means clear that this assumption is true. Still, it seems that an important basis for thinking that premise 3 is false the way of theodicy is not available to us. So, remember, premise 3, there is probably no reason that would justify God and permitting horrific evil and suffering or so much of it what he essentially concludes is that we don't have a stance on this issue we we really can't take a stance maybe there is a reason and i'm inclined to think that there is a reason maybe there isn't a reason but again what uh what snyder's main concern is is that there is so much evil and suffering um that well that maybe God does have a reason for allowing evil and suffering to exist in the world, but 
he doesn't think God has a reason for permitting so much evil and suffering, right? And yeah. here's my question is what if what if this amount that we're seeing right now is small? I mean it probably What is. if there's so right, what if there's so much more that could be going on, so much more evil that we could be seeing that we don't seeing because God is for his reasons not allowing it to happen, right? What if like what we're seeing right now is is just the minimum, right? So I don't I don't know if there's a point where we could say this is too much evil and suffering. This is too much. I think all we can do is say, this is what we have right now. Because if we were allowed to say, this is too much, this is a sufficient amount of evil and suffering, I think we wouldn't be able to find a cutoff line. So say we we took it down to, say, you know, maybe 200,000 less deaths per year, right? That's... Mm-hmm that's our cutoff line that's that's where that's that's where you know evil and suffering is uh sufficient right but i think we get used to that i think we would get used to that and then i think maybe a year later after after we're used to that we'd probably be saying this is still too much yeah and we that's, maybe that's a then point. maybe then we would say okay we need 2000 less and then say all the all the evil and suffering in the world was reduced down to paper cuts, right? I think at that point, we would get used to that. And each time we would get a paper cut, we would just say, ah, this is too much evil and suffering. You know, I don't know. I don't know if you're right. That's that's an interesting point. I don't know if you're right because I think people can see the difference between paper cuts and un, like being tortured and killed. Right, but get to a generation but like a exactly, but that doesn't know it, right? That that doesn't think, remember a time where torture and killing was a thing. I think they would come to see paper cuts as the most evil thing in the world and want to get rid of it. Okay, maybe. There's no way to test that. But I think the bigger question is, let's say we found a reason that would justify God in permitting horrific evil and suffering or so much of it the real question is would we believe it would we believe the reason yes so right now i'm reading the consolation of philosophy uh, by bothius and i'm just going to talk a little bit about that because he has a good quote in it i'm going to read the quote and then kind of explain what the book's about okay so this is bothius um, talking to lady philosophy so this book is written as a sort of dialogue between bothius and lady philosophy who is consoling him and bothius says to lady philosophy when i consider your arguments i think that nothing more true could be said but if i turn back to the opinions of men who would consider these ideas worthy to listen to let alone be believed um and so a little bit of background about this book uh it is written in the 6th century AD, I believe, um, and it's written by a Roman uh, named Bothius, and he's kind of high up in like the Roman hierarchy. Um, I think, I don't, I think in the Senate, I'm not entirely sure, I forget the background behind it, but the emperor 
basically kind of stabs him in the back and has him tortured and jailed and eventually executed. And this book was written in the last days of Bothius, right before he died, and is a dialogue between him and Lady Philosophy, who has come to console him, which is where you get the term, the consolation of philosophy. And it's very Greek style, so the dialogue and a lot of like the reasoning seems very Greek, um, and he's heavily influenced by... Um, Greek philosophers and Stoics and people like that. Uh, but he was a Christian, which is a lot different than other ancient philosophy works. Basically, he asks the question, well, really he asks four questions, which is can kind of be summed up into the problem of pain. Or really why anything happens at all. It's why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to bad people? Why do good things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? And the answers to why do bad things happen to bad thing, people and good things happen to good people, people feel like they're pretty self-explanatory. Right. Um, yeah, John, so why do you think bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people? I think that just goes back to Snyder's point, which is that we can't know really anything about premise three. We can't we can't know anything about the reasons I guess uh, there's probably yeah. no reason that would justify God in permitting horrific evil and suffering or so much so much of it we we really can't say that this is true we really can't and we're in no position either to say that it's false because we don't know everything so why do good things happen to bad people and why do bad things happen to good people i don't know the answer i think it's i think it's interesting how we come across this phenomenon right and we our question is why is this happening like, we want to know a reason for why something is happening. I think that's interesting. It, it's, it, it says something about human nature in general that we seek a reason for why something is happening instead of just letting it happen and just reacting to it. Yeah. And to make a comment on naturalism, if all we are is... is this product of evolution and all we are is just molecules and chemicals if we're purely together. material beings if we're pur yeah if you were if all we are is just bodies i don't think we would be looking for a reason i don't think we would be asking this question why is this happening it's it's interesting how or I Humans. think at least if we believed that, then we wouldn't be asking that question. Okay. Okay. And people do believe that, and those people still ask the question. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, we want a moral explanation, and, and yet we're willing to make the assertion, if we are naturalists, 
that there is no moral cause for our existence, right? That there's only a natural cause for our existence, and yet we want a moral explanation for the problem of pain and suffering. It doesn't make sense. How can you have a? How can you get a moral? How do? You, how can you get moral thinking in the effect? Right. That is us in our existence, and not have a moral cause, uh, because naturalists say that nature is the cause, while Christians say that God is the cause, and God is a moral being. Therefore, we can have moral instincts, right? And we can have a moral way of thinking because God, who is a moral being, endowed us with it. How how can nature, a non-moral entity, right? endow creatures with a moral way of thinking that doesn't make sense so i i think the fact that we ask the question why says something about our nature right says something about okay there's more going on maybe within us than we know mm-hmm. i also think it's interesting how we are so confident in our assertions about whether someone is bad or whether someone is good. <laughs> yeah, that's right? a good point. I mean, what does it mean to be a good person or a bad person? Because right. it's it's obviously not that simple. There's obviously bad people do good things and good people do bad things. But what do I even mean by good things, bad things, good people and bad people? There's a good quote that I I heard. I don't remember where I heard it. I think it's like a famous quote. It's, the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man. And, you know, it may not be halfway through the heart of every man, but I believe that there's some sort of truth in that. So, maybe we don't know the explanation as to why bad things and good things happen to good people and bad people. But Bothius proposes an answer to these questions. Um, He first says that bad things happen to good people um, in order to test them. Um, You can see that in God testing Abraham, asking him to sacrifice Isaac, God testing Job, Um, You can see it in quite a lot of biblical stories. Okay, that's that's what he says. Um, Why do bad things happen to bad people? He says that it is, in a sense, bad things happen to bad people so that they repent. So they see what's bad and they think, okay, what could I have possibly done to cause this? And then look within themselves and all the wickedness that they've done and wickedness that they hold and to get rid of that and repent from it and turn towards God. Okay. So both of them proposes, okay, why do good things happen to good people? And he says, this is a reward for them being good. And he says, being a good person is being virtuous and being a bad person is being wicked. And I think that's what most people would, most people would 
think that that was evident, meaning good things happen to good people as a reward for their goodness. I don't necessarily know if that's true because if something good happens to you, I don't either. Because if something good happens to you, how do you know that you're good and you're being rewarded or you're bad and something good's happening to you? And Bothius explains why do good things happen to bad people? He says it's their punishment. Which I stopped and I was like, wait, what? Because <laughs> you think good things wouldn't be a punishment. But well, if bad things yeah. don't happen to bad people... Then they're not being driven to repentance. They're not being driven to repentance. And so he says, what is ultimately good is the acquisition of virtue. And what is ultimately bad is wickedness. And I thought that was a very interesting idea. And so he says, what is the reward for the acquisition of virtue? It's virtue itself. And I think that is seemingly the only direct cause and effect that you can draw between the consequence of being good. You can't say, because I'm a good person, because I acquire virtue, good things should happen to me. No, the only thing that you can say is, because I acquire virtue, I now have virtue. Right? Okay. And con- uh, conversely, it's with wickedness. The, on- the punishment for wickedness is wickedness itself. And Bothius argues that wickedness makes men miserable. And he says, for if wickedness makes men miserable, then men who are wicked longer than others must be more miserable. Because they're not acquiring virtue. And virtue is what makes us godlike, in a sense. It is what separates us from animals. He then goes on to kind of explain how we, you know, make analogies between wickedness and animals. So I'm going to read a quote. Suppose a violent robber burns with desire for another man's riches. You'd say he's like a wolf. A wild and restless man who busies his tongue with lawsuits. You can compare him to a dog. A man who sneaks and lurks about, hoping to trip up others by deceit, he is just a little fox. A man who can't control his rage seems to bear the spirit of a lion. A timid, frightened man who flees from things he shouldn't fear is like a deer. A sluggish, dull, lazy man lives the life of a donkey. Suppose a fickle, inconsistent man keeps changing his pursuits. He's no different from a bird, a man who draws in foul and impure lusts. He's held by the pleasures of a dirty sow. And so it happens that a man who abandons virtue, since he can't become godlike, turns into a beast. And so he's saying wickedness ultimately makes men miserable. Okay. And if you really think about it, you can kind of convince yourself that good things happen to bad people as a punishment. In a sense, not saying necessarily good always because you don't know who's good and who's bad and it's a lot more complicated than that but you can convince yourself of these reasons but then you really take a step back and you look at the actual suffering and immediately you just are unconvinced again 
That goes back to his earlier statement saying, When I consider your arguments, I think that nothing more true could be said. But if I turn back to the opinions of men, who would consider these ideas worthy to listen to, let alone be believed? And I, I really understand that because while this all sounds good, it, it's hard to believe in the actual when the suffering's actually happening. And so I think you're going to talk about trusting God in a second, right? Um, it, it may not be that we should just be trusting God that he has an answer to these reasons, that he has a logical explanation, because we're not purely logical beings. I think it also means that we need to trust God that he can comfort us, which it, it's hard to trust him for that. I mean, that's that's hard, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so here, let me... I, I do want to say something before I move on a little bit. So, the notion of theodicy, right? Providing an excuse for God to allow suffering. I, I want to ask the question, what are we actually doing here? By stating a reason that justifies God, right? That makes God right and allowing for suffering. This doesn't make sense to me, right? Because really we borrow our definitions of right and wrong and good and bad from God himself. How are How we so? in a position? Well, go back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created, right? In the beginning, God said, God separated, God affirmed, and then God saw that it was good, right? That's what I mean. God defines something as good, and then from there, we're, we're able to, to live and, and say that something's good, but precisely be, because it is good, right? Its essence is good because God defined it as good, right? God sets the solid ground that we're then able to walk on, okay? So in that sense, we borrow our definitions of things from God himself. We borrow our definition of good and evil from God himself. Where else could we turn for these things? We couldn't make them up, right? So the fact that we are trying to justify God doesn't make sense to me. God is already justified in whatever he does because he's the one who sets the definitions, logically speaking. Okay. And I know existentially this might this might be more of a problem because there are things we don't like and we feel right in not liking things. But logically, right, God is the one who sets the definitions. God is already justified. Right? Paul in Romans 3, 4, he says, let God be true and every human being a liar. If all of us lie and if all of us say, God, you are wrong, God is still right because God is right. Right? It, and it cannot be otherwise. Okay. I mean, that's, that's true. But for people who don't believe that the Bible is true, how do they believe that we got the idea of God being good if there's so much suffering it wouldn't like that seems inconceivable 
Right. And this is where I think C.S. Lewis does a good job of saying why we expect God to be good. So C.S. Lewis and his book, The Problem of Pain, in the first chapter actually lays out sort of uh, an exposition of religion. And he says there are three things common to every religion. So he says one is the experience of the numinous. Right, That's a funny word, numinous. But what does numinous mean? It's uh, numinous is this sort of dread. And C.S. Lewis says that this numinous feeling can be seen in our fear for the dead, right? Our fear of dead people uh, and our, like, our distaste of horrific things, which is strange because he says that dead people are actually the least dangerous kind of men. It doesn't make sense. They cannot do us any danger, but we are afraid of them. That he would call numinous dread. And this numinous feeling within us gives us the sense that that we're not the only ones who exist, exist, right? Ghosts. There's a whole other world that, if we follow this feeling, does exist apart from us that we can't see. And then secondly, within religions we find the acknowledgement of some kind of morality. Um, mm-hmm. And Lewis says that moralities accepted among men may differ from culture to culture, but they all agree in prescribing a behavior which their adherents fail to practice. <laughs> so we yeah. have morality that we fail to live up to, this moral standard that we fail to live up to. So you have the numinous, you have the acknowledgement of morality, and then finally we become uh, after having become conscious of guilt and failing to live up to the moral standard, we realize that it's actually the numinous power that's the guardian of morality. So that's the relationship between the numinous feeling and the moral standard we perceive is that the numinous power of which we feel dread or maybe awe is actually the guardian of this moral moral standard that we haven't met. And so we don't want to approach this numinous power because we've failed him, right? And we are conscious of our failures. But fourthly, right, there are three things. Those three things, Lewis would say, are common to religions in general. The fourth strand is common to Christianity alone. And this, this fourth strand is what leads us to expect a loving God and a good God in our experience, right? And the fourth Mm -hmm. strand which is unique to Christianity, Lewis says, is a historical event. It's the incarnation of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And what did God become incarnate to accomplish? He, came, he became incarnate to accomplish, um, to make a way for our salvation, to make a way for our reconciliation with him, to make a way to... To where our our failure to meet the moral standard and the guilt we experience because of this does not hinder us having a relationship with him because what or because why because he he poured out his wrath on the person of Jesus Christ on on himself incarnate in Jesus Christ so that we being justified by faith and believing right that Christ is enough for our salvation may have peace with God. And so this act of becoming incarnate is an extremely loving thing to do and having 
having knowledge of this, we then come to experience that God will be loving and favorable toward us and everything else, right? I think that's where we get the idea that that uh, that we we expect God to be good toward us. Okay. So I do want to run just a little bit more by the this problem of suffering, okay? And uh, Dr. Vince Vitale, who works for the Ravi Zacharias International Ministry Organization, has a really interesting explanation of why suffering and how we can still believe that God is good, right? Even we when we don't find him giving us a reason for the problem of suffering. And so Vince, he likes to talk about this story of when he was six years old, he was playing football on his front lawn and he was playing football with a bunch of guys who were older than him and he was getting pretty beat up. And he, he ran away from ran ran from the ran from the football field and went to his mom and he said mom i can't do it and by this time he's in tears he's saying mom i can't do it i am just not good enough i am just not tough enough that's what he said and he said at this point his mom looked at him and did something completely unexpected right what she did was she looked at him and she said punch me in the nose punch me in the nose and then she bent down and she stuck her face right in front of him. And she said, punch me in the nose. You are tough enough. And he says at this point, you know, he was six years old. He wasn't really thinking, but he reared back and he gave his mom a straight shot to the nose. <laughs> Dang, said, savage. I know. Well, he also says that he later be- went on to become a boxer. Uh, <laughs> and so he says this was, this was the beginning of his boxing career, but... <laughs> he said he reared back and he gave his mom a straight shot to the nose and to his surprise blood actually began to trickle out of her nose right but at this point what does his mom do his mom looks at him and he says she gave him the most loving smile and she said you are tough enough get back out there and then he runs right out of the house back to the football field and starts playing again. And he says this is just a small example of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Is when we are weak, right? He doesn't stay far off. In our suffering, he doesn't stay far off. No, he comes near, right? And he gets down in the dirt with us and he actually takes our punishment and he bleeds for us, right? Yeah. And he comes close and he says, let's do this, right? I'm not going to stay far off. I'm going to I'm gonna come close for you. Um, and this, this is what gets me. Every time we raise the problem of suffering is that, you know, maybe we don't have the reasons, the logical reasons that God... Uh, for God allowing suffering in our world. But we do have the image of God himself not staying far off, but coming close and and bleeding for us and dying for us. And so I think that a God who is willing to do this for us is 
if 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 he for some reason can't give us the reasons I'm okay with that because I see his character, right? Mm-hmm. I see his character and I say his character is enough for me to trust him. I don't need the logic. I just want the character. So Ravi Zacharias often says, God put enough in the world to make faith in him a most reasonable thing, but he left enough out to make it impossible to live on sheer reason alone. And Dr. John Lennox also says, Paul used reason and intellectual abilities, but he didn't trust them. It is far too easy to trust intellect and use God. Paul, the apostle, used every ability that God gave him to the full, but he trusted God, right? So why would God not give us his reasons for permitting evil? And Well, I don't think I can speak for him, but I do know this, that relationships, which is what he wants for us, a relationship between us and him, relationships are not built on reason. Relationships are built on trust, and they incorporate reason, but they are not built on reason. And yeah, so it makes sense that, that God asks us to trust him, and he gives us a very trustworthy picture of himself and Jesus Christ, though he doesn't give us the answers that we want. Yeah, I, I think that goes back to us not being purely rational beings perhaps there is a rational explanation that of why god allows so much suffering but i think even if there was and even if we knew it we wouldn't feel okay with it which is really strange so we're not purely rational no matter how much we'd like to be. So I think trusting God comes in trusting him to trusting him to comfort us in that. Right. Well, Dude. I think yeah. I think we might be at a, a pretty good stopping point. Is there anything you want to finish with? Uh, no, I think that's all I got to say. Okay. All right. I'll see. All you. right. Bye, Will. Bye. Thank you.